From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. State lawmakers are considering their most sweeping package of gun legislation in years. The bills could mean major changes to who can buy certain types of guns, and more. We'll break down the debate. Then, a year ago, he was a university student in Ukraine, studying web development and playing volleyball. Now he and his family call Colorado home. I would like to stay in the United States for a long time, but I have a lot of friends in my country, in my city, so I wish one day, someday, yeah, I would like to visit and meet my friends again. We'll hear the challenges and adjustments one Ukrainian family faces a year into the war. It's culture shock. It's challenges with unemployment, with education. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Democrats at the State House have introduced their most sweeping package of gun legislation in years. The bills could mean major changes to who can buy certain types of guns and more. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland has been following this issue closely and joins me now. Hi, Benta. Hi, Chandra. So, Benta, I've looked up the bills and I want your help walking through what each of them would do. First, I see there's a bill that would require a waiting period between when someone buys the gun and when they'd actually take possession of it. So what are the deta- details on that? Yep. So uh, this bill would require a three-day waiting period for firearm purchases in Colorado. It does not include antique guns. And then there's also an exemption for domestic violence victims who have a restraining order. Hmm. Supporters say they think it's critical for suicide prevention. And Democratic Representative Judy Amabile is one of the main sponsors. And she reflected on a time in her own life when her son was suicidal and he had paid for a background check to purchase a gun. And Amabile said she went to the store in Boulder Uh, And she and her husband convinced the owner not to sell her son that gun. But we got lucky. And so many other families don't get lucky like we did. My kid is still alive. And a, a day or two after that, he ended up in hospital. And he got some treatment. And he's doing better now. For context, how many other states have waiting periods? Nine other states, and they have a variety of of waiting periods. So it ranges from three days in Florida to two weeks in Hawaii. Then there's a bill about requiring someone to be 21 years old to buy any type of firearm. How would that change things from the way it works now? So right now, for handguns, it would not change anything because people in Colorado already have to be 21 years old. Mm. 
But the minimum age in the state to buy a long gun is 18, and that includes some very high-powered weapons like AR-15s. So this bill would have an exemption, and that would be for younger hunters to buy shotguns and for younger people 18 to 20 to fire weapons, guns, under the supervision of an older family member, so someone over the age of 25. For the Democratic sponsors, the reason for this bill is that they say a lot of gun crimes, including really horrific mass shootings, have been committed by younger people, so they want to raise this purchase age. And they also said that the suicide rate is another big concern, the high suicide rate for young people. And here's Democratic House Majority Leader Monica Duran. To me, it's a common sense law. It's something that makes sense to me. As a responsible gun owner, and I know there are many of us out there that look at this and say, you know what, that's a step. So if this does pass, Colorado would be the eighth state to ban people under age 21 from buying guns. Opponents of this policy say, in their mind, this is one of the most egregious of the bills Democrats have introduced because they said it's essentially denying 18 to 20-year-olds their constitutional Second Amendment right. Now, what about extreme risk protection orders, also known as ERPOs? Now, these are court orders that allow a person's gun to be taken away if someone deems them a risk to themselves or others. Now, right now, only law enforcement, a family member or a roommate can file them. But there's a bill out there to expand that list. What can you tell us about that? Yes. So the goal there is to include more people who might be in a position to to spot someone who's potentially dangerous. So this bill would add educators, high, you know, healthcare providers, mm. licensed mental health professionals, so, you know, marriage and addiction counselors, psychologists, social workers, and a- another key group, district attorneys. Mm. So, in that case the idea is that maybe in jurisdictions where law enforcement is either opposed to using this policy or isn't fully trained, prosecutors might step in. So the main sponsor here, one of them, is Democratic Senator Tom Sullivan. His son, Alex, was killed in the Aurora theater shooting. The shooter was seeing a therapist at that time, and the therapist notifies the parents about her concerns, but Sullivan said there was nothing more she could do, and he believes a law like this could have changed things. Saving lives and helping others to not have to live the life I have, since Alex was murdered, is the sole reason I wake up every day to do all I can to do that work. Now, the groups that are represented in this expanded list, how are they feeling about the potential responsibility of this? I've heard that teachers especially are very concerned. Um, You know, even though the bill doesn't require anyone to file these orders, Teachers worry about public criticism and attacks on teachers or therapists if someone they work with or a student does go on to commit an act of violence or Mm -hmm. suicide and then they hadn't filed one of these orders. Now, this proposed bill specifically says teachers, therapists, you know, no one could be held liable for not filing an order in a situation like that. But that doesn't stop people from blaming those individuals. And we've certainly seen in recent years an increase overall for online harassment and threats. And I talked to Republican House Minority Leader Mike Lynch. He opposes all of these bills. And he said he just doesn't think it's up to other people, teachers, therapists, or anyone to tell someone they don't have a Second Amendment right. 
Anybody who can impose their will or their thought or their opinion and then as a result take away somebody's constitutional right is pretty scary. Now there's also a bill to change the liability rules for the firearms industry. What would that entail? So right now gun makers and dealers are protected from lawsuits that could claim that the business practice contributed to an act of violence, like say a gun dealer sells a rifle to someone who goes on to use it in a mass shooting or in some other way. But this bill would lift that immunity. And so it would give victims the ability to try to make that case that the seller or the manufacturer does bear some responsibility in civil court. Supporters say they just hope it leads to reasonable precautions to prevent unforeseeable risks. Now, I should note that these are the bills that have already been introduced, but you've also been following ones that are in the works and have the potential to be very controversial. For example, a ban on so-called assault weapons. Yes. And, you know, interestingly, that was not included in this package of bills we've been talking about because Democrats aren't in agreement on whether Colorado should move ahead with an assault weapons ban. So right now there isn't a technical definition of a, quote, assault weapon. It's not a term the industry uses. But the idea would be to attempt to define that and then ban the sale of a class of weapons and accessories that backers say are particularly lethal. So we've seen an initial draft, but there isn't a bill yet. Um, One important point, though, is that if people already own these guns under the draft, they will be allowed to keep them, although they could still go to another state to to buy those firearms and bring them back uh, to Colorado. Now, why wasn't that introduced with the other bills? Does that say anything about its level of support from Democratic leaders? It does. And we've heard a lot of concern from Democrats, even Senator Sullivan and Democratic Representative Meg Froelich. They have concerns. She chairs the Gun Violence Prevention Caucus with Sullivan. And Froelich said she's not sure that the state has a way right now to enforce something like an assault weapons ban. We really feel like if you're going to have these big fights, if they're going to go on for days, that you better get it right and you, you better actually make a difference and, and reduce gun violence with what you're doing. So behind the scenes, I would say 100% the practicalities of an assault weapons ban, how it would be implemented, how effective it would be, is dividing Democrats. Um, I would note that the vast, vast majority of Democrats support it in theory. And I would quickly add there is one more bill coming on ghost guns. And that's related, Mm. you know, and and the governor has talked about that being a priority. Now, what kind of debate are you expecting over these bills? Well, first off, these are just initially introduced. So there could be a lot of amendments and changes potentially. So that happens throughout the legislative process. But these would be big changes to Colorado's gun laws. I think most people are aware that this is a contentious partisan issue with deep divisions. And we're a state that has a lot of gun owners, lots of strong backers of the Second Amendment. So we can expect every step of the process, every hearing to be long, to be contentious, huge crowds at the Capitol. Uh, Taylor Rhodes heads Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, and he said his group has already crafted lawsuits. They're drafted and ready to go if these bills pass. So this is nothing more than pandering to their most left-leaning constituents. This is doing nothing other than costing the state millions of dollars. Our attorneys believe that our lawsuits will cost anywhere from $750,000 to a million dollars per side. So if all four four of these go to court, you're looking at costing the state $4 million plus an additional million if they introduce the assault weapons ban. 
Rhodes said he and his supporters, they, they're going to plan to turn the Capitol into a, quote, circus. Mm. And Republican lawmakers, yes, they're in the minority, but they will use every tool they have available to them, which mostly comes down to delay tactics to try to run out the clock on these bills or at least make the debate take so long that it puts a lot of other Democratic priorities in jeopardy. Thank you, Benta. Thanks. CPR Public Affairs reporter Benta Berkland talking about the package of gun legislation going through the state legislature right now. When we come back, a Ukrainian family adjusts to life in Colorado one year after Russia's invasion. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The newest podcast from Colorado Public Radio called Terra Firma brings you the sounds of nature with reflections from Colorado-born writer C. Marie Furman. The sounds in nature are like the voices of friends. I know when I hear the first robin every spring what that means. The sound of wind in trees, the bugle of elk. Those are the memories that become the soundtrack to our lives. Find Terra Firma wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Credit Union of Colorado. A year ago, Vadim Tankashkor was a university student in Ukraine. He studied web development and loved to play volleyball. And then came the war and the air raid sirens. We just had every day and every night the um, rockets air alarm. It was scary. It was much stressful. And like, you don't know what, what happened tomorrow. You just go throw it. Before long, Tonkashkor, his parents, and three younger brothers left their homeland. The hardest part for me was realized and accept that we are going to left our country. We are going to leave all our life, future, hopes, goals, achieves. I could not believe it. Now he's 18 and a student at Front Range Community College where he's learning English and thinking about a career as a translator. And he says he's happy here. I would like to stay in the United States for a long time, but I have a lot of friends in my country, in my city. So I wish one day, someday, yeah, I would like to visit and meet my friends again. The Tonkashkors now live in Broomfield with Oksana Kovalenko and her family. Kovalenko came to the U.S. from Ukraine 25 years ago. Oksana, welcome. Thank you. Tell me a bit more about Vadim and his family. Well, it's a family of six. It's mom, Svetlana, dad, Alex, and four children. Vadim is 18, Nazar is 14, and two little twins are four and a half now. Um, Mom and dad are taking ESL classes. Nazar is in high school. It's a Centaurus High School in Lafayette. They have an amazing newcomers program that involves him into computer coding, into language learning. Additionally, Nazar does robotics with uh, mm. Broomfield Broombots. They just went to state competition. and Wow. We're ninth um, out of 27 teams, I believe. So he went from not speaking any English to participating in a competition. 
So great job there for him. And then Vadim, he has been taking ESL classes for some time, and now he's taking college-level classes that allow him to get credit for those. And um, just yesterday applied for a scholarship where he had to write an essay. So everybody's super busy. (laughs) And it sounds like they're all having really impactful experiences. I would say so. And I'm trying really hard for them not to be bored. Anytime I hear that they're bored, I'm like, okay, we're going out and doing something. (laughs) (laughs) The Tankashkors are relatives, but hosting a family is a big obligation. Why did you decide to do it? Uh, They're family that I only knew of until the war started. But once the war started... I don't think I posed that question to myself except how quickly can I do it? Um, How quickly can we get them out? We didn't even know we can bring them to states. We only knew that they needed to be out to safety. Now, what have been the biggest hurdles for this family? You live everything behind within a week of time. You you leave your, your, your future plans friends, community, um, and you pack it all in one suitcase. So you go to Poland, and there you they stayed at a refugee camp. So there was no promise of anything except safety, and that was good enough for that time. They stayed mm. for about 35 days in Poland. And then here, the question is, do they want to stay can they? Because there is no answer yet. There's no decision made on what happens after two-year humanitarian parole expires. So many people ask questions. Oh, are they excited to stay here? What's your future? But that thought is so um, far removed because they don't know what happens in a year. Hmm. Well, that's got to be hard just living in uncertainty like that. And also the parents aren't working. No. Fortunately, me and my husband, Tom, were able to provide resources that don't require them to work but concentrate on learning English because it's either one or the other. If you go work at the factory or if you become a janitor and start cleaning offices somewhere at night, you don't have enough spam to learn English and be in school and do homework. So for now, we're providing them an opportunity to only concentrate on English and they have a place to stay, they have food to eat, we have transportation in a house, so it just keeps the stress level down. Um, Given the fact that they have family left behind in their country and knowing what's going on in their country, I, I I feel like they are even feeling guilty of being excited about the opportunities that are presented to them because they can relate of what's happening in their country, um, especially for young children who left friends behind. Mm. You can see them being excited to want to talk to their friends on the phone or online, but their dads are fighting a war and their electricity gets turned off. And sometimes they go days without food or they cannot get food at a grocery store because of not being safe outside. So, you know, here they're excited to go to school and 
go to a park, go to a museum. So I, I can't imagine what's going on <laughs> in their little hearts. Yeah, and I see you kind of getting a little misty-eyed there when you talk about it. It's 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 touching. I was helping Vadim yesterday uh, write a um, scholarship application, and mm-hmm. he was writing about an influential person, and he talked about his friend who's still in Ukraine, his peer. You know, I suggested that wouldn't you want to go visit, or wouldn't you want to have him come over and visit you if you can't go? He cried. He got so emotional that I realized the the burden that that he carries and doesn't even have anybody to talk to about, you know, it's a lot. Now, you talked a lot about the stress of it. What's been the mental toll? Have you seen them express that in any way? (sighs) Me being an immigrant in the United States for 25 years, I came here when I was 22. I had little children myself, had a little support system. But being young... I just went after it. I went mm. to school. I worked nights cleaning offices like this and work done early, sitting in the break room doing my homework. So I look at them and I'm like, you can do it. Just do, 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 ESL, go to play volleyball with Americans. So I drive this, you know, go-getting mm-hmm. uh, mentality. I keep forgetting that culture shock is every person – lives through it differently. Um, From both of the 18-year-old and 14-year-old, I keep hearing, I'm scared of people. What do you mean? What are you afraid of? I don't know if they, if I look at them wrong. I don't know if they say something I, I don't understand. So there's this a lot of anxiety that we haven't been able to address in professional setting, right? Talking to a therapist, um, Mm. maybe a group. Um, There are not many resources yet that help with um, mental portion of this whole situation. So they come to me. Mm -hmm. I come from work and I have a line of people waiting. Somebody wants to show me their drawing. Somebody (laughs) wants to ask me a question because they have homework to do and they don't know how to deal online with it. Somebody wants to talk about stuff that they play on the computer with. So by the time I'm done, it's like an hour and a half before I can even take my shoes off sometimes. you're pretty exhausted. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I don't have the skills to provide the best outlet, but I'm kind of learning as I go. Um, I wish I was more prepared. Oksana Kovalenko is hosting six members of the Tonakashkor family who fled their home in Ukraine last year due to war. Kovalenko told me how she's helping the family adapt to the challenges of day-to-day life in America. We're putting them out. Go to a WOW Children's Museum. Figure it out. <laughs> Here's the address. Immersive mom and dad. Learning. <laughs> Imagine, you know, mom and dad get the Google and I'm like, take the kids out. You said the challenges. What food do Americans eat? Well, we don't like the food they eat. Okay, how do we compromise? How about we learn a little bit about the food that Americans eat? Like we take them out to a restaurant, Mm. right? So they know what it means when the waitress comes up. And they may have had those experiences in Ukraine, but not the same because it's your own home country. You let your kids figure it out. It's very different. 
Well, you're making me wonder, what American foods have they enjoyed? What are their favorites? Um, for some reason, this fried <laughs> chicken and fries <laughs> is comfort food. And maybe it's across cultures. I'm not sure. I Maybe somebody will tell me one day. But anytime we take uh, Nazar, 14-year-old, to robotics, that's the food he wants. <laughs> because while he has to engage with American teachers or kids and adults and participate in a competition, that gives them comfort. So, I mean, I think we, yeah. Does he have a certain brand, a uh, certain place he likes to get it from? Yeah, Raising Cane's. <laughs> Chicken fingers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's definitely been around American children. <laughs> yeah. There's even a debate in the house if it's Chick-fil-A or Raisin Cane's. Well, tell him the next uh, the next uh, field trip has to be to the American South <laughs> if he likes fried chicken. There you go. So have there been some funny moments that you've experienced Ooh, I think they're all funny. (laughs) They're all all funny because... Well, maybe that's it. Maybe it's the reality show cameras that should be following you. (laughs) Well, and this is what my husband suggested because it's so hard to retell. I wish I could sit down and write because I could write a book about it. It's rewarding to watch what happens I mean, they've been with us for since May, right? So about nine months ish. Um, how just how they progressed being feared to be spoken to with with children, especially and young adults. But now there's so much engagement. There's so much curiosity that all the hard work is worth it. I think they're blessed to be here, and there are resources here to help them. So um, it's something that cannot be taken away no matter what happens, really. Well, let's keep it real. You have nearly a dozen people in your house, so there's got to be some tense moments. What has that been like? It teaches me a lot of patience (laughs) to this day because you take a family who learned— a way of raising their children. And all of a sudden, there are these two mentors walking around and saying, don't do that, do it this way. And like United States parenting is not like this. <laughs> we don't parent like this. And I say we, even though I'm from Ukraine, so I have, I understand both perspectives. I understand, you know, spanking. I was spanked when I was a kid. But at the same time, I'm like, no, let's try a different way. And yeah, disagreements. I think we've managed well enough not to, you know, just pack suitcases and go our separate ways so far. <laughs> uh, when people ask how long they'll stay, we say till kids graduate school <gasps> because they are in real good uh, school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I mean, put it on two parents who don't speak English, only one knows how to drive and be responsible for children. And it's difficult. It's a a lot. lot. (laughs) We said it at the same time. That was my thought. Yeah, it's a lot. So I, we do our best to make him feel safe, comfortable, not judged, but helped. 
so they feel as there is a value for us to help them versus, you know, we're just controlling their life all of a sudden. Well, it must be working. Vadim told us he'd like to stay in the United States for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, have you been in touch with other families to kind of get a sense of uh, similar experiences that they're having with um, family members or people that they are having in their home? Yes. Challenges are similar across families. It's culture shock. It's challenges with an employment, with education, getting a permit test. I've translated to about a dozen permit test visits. I translate them the questions so they can answer the, the, the written test and then, you know, the driver's test. What happens with that? Everybody goes through the same steps, maybe on different levels and time frames, but yet the challenges are the same. How do we speak English? How do we get a job? Now, the eastern part of Ukraine has been hit the hardest in the war. Vadim comes from central Ukraine and says he doesn't know anyone who was actually killed, but he's very angry about the war. Let's hear what he had to say. All what happens now in my country because of Russian aggression, it's it's just, I cannot find the words for that. I, it's, it's just wild and ridiculous. From your vantage point, what's it been like for you to watch this happen? It's been very difficult. I don't. I, I almost don't allow myself to feel emotions about it because it makes me very sad. There's no reason for it, in my opinion. It's heartbreaking. So people, I have friends there who have to run from the two, three, four-story apartment buildings and run to the bomb shelter dozen times a day mm. because they don't know when that airstrike warning will become an airstrike. And then also women who I've, I've offered my friends to come and, and stay in Poland. I would help them. Come stay in states. I would mm-hmm. help them. How do you leave your husband and your son who went to fight the war? They don't want to leave because to them that's, that's it's a betrayal. It's it, they. <laughs> So a lot of emotional turmoil here, um, you know, between trying to improve your condition, but also feeling guilty or, like you said, sad Mm -hmm. about what is still unfolding. Yeah. Oksana, what are your goals for Vadim's family? Where would you like to see them in, say, four or five years? Well, hopefully they can stay. So that's goal number one. Goal number two is for them to become independent and um, successful. So, um, yeah, kids be happy. And the war to be over, really. Um, That's not my goal, but that's my wish. (laughs) Oksana, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Oksana Kovalenko is from Ukraine and works as a baking industry consultant. She lives in Broomfield. Tomorrow, we'll have a conversation about U.S. strategy towards Ukraine with Congressman Jason Crow. The Colorado Democrat sits on the House Intelligence and Armed Services Committees. He's also traveled to Ukraine last year and plans to return. Representative Crow tells Ryan Warner increasingly he has his eyes on a third party, China. There has been an increased 
relationship between China and Russia, an economic relationship. China has helped Russia usurp sanctions. And we know that they are seriously considering and even taking some steps to start providing lethal aid, uh, essentially uh, weapons and ammunition to Russia to help Russia fight and win this war. What would it look like for Ukraine to win? Representative Crow will lay out a four-point strategy, but he's also in the minority now. So what kind of buy-in might his strategy have? That's tomorrow on Colorado Matters. More than half a million people go to prison every year in the U.S. 95% of them will eventually get out. Colorado is one of six states experimenting with a new program focused less on punishment and more on keeping young people from returning to incarceration. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce says they're doing it through the mentorship of older inmates. Jennifer Benson and her husband Gary are touring the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility in southeastern Colorado visiting from their home in Idaho. I can tell you um, having a child in prison is devastating and heartbreaking and honestly I never thought we would go from proud army parents to prison parents. About five years ago Benson's son Bradley was locked up here, 20 years old and facing a 29-year sentence for assault. Going from the army to this I thought I had found my purpose right and so now I'm in prison and like it seemed hopeless right. Benson says his first few years in prison, he felt like he could only focus on survival, always watching his back. He says things are different now. Right here to our left is APOD, and this is Changemaker Village. 40-year-old inmate Terry Gay is showing me around a cell block that's unlike anything I ever expected to see in a medium security prison like this. All the aesthetics is completely different than any other pod in this whole facility. A big screen TV hangs on a bright, multicolored wall. Couches, a kitchen with a microwave, absolutely packed bookcases. This is the Restoring Promises unit. And they said, hey, what do y'all think about having your own housing unit over there? You think you guys can hold that down? Absolutely, we'll give it a shot. Gay has served 18 years of a life sentence for murder and attempted murder. He's one of about a dozen men in the unit, men doing hard time, about a dozen older men like Gay, who have been chosen to lead young guys like former Army soldier Bradley Benson. Gay says they work out together, take classes, they hold group discussions every day. I never thought I'd be a part of something like this. Like this right here is amazing. Gay and the other mentors who applied to be in the program went through 10 weeks of training to learn to help those in their care. I want to add value to these young men so they can be of value to their loved ones. Someone had to teach me that, and I feel like now I'm ready for that. Gay says he hopes if he really proves himself, maybe someday he will earn his freedom. If not, at least this is giving his life meaning. And on this cell block, for the first time in a long time, he feels safe. I can sleep with my door open. I would never do that in prison. I can really do that here. Sometimes I forget to close my door at night. In an open gymnasium on the other side of the grounds, there's something else you wouldn't expect to see in a prison. A celebration, the one-year anniversary of the Restoring Promises unit here. 
It includes performances of inmates' ethnic cultures, speeches, videos. A couple hundred people sit at white folding tables eating cafeteria food. You can tell who the inmates are. They're the ones wearing white polo shirts and green pants. But they're not shackled. And they're at these tables with their families. They can touch and hug each other. We think, much like a lot of our partners here in the Colorado Department of Corrections, that the loss of liberty is the punishment, not the way that you're treated once you're here. That's Ryan Shanahan. She's the director of the Restoring Promises Initiative at the New York-based nonprofit Vera Institute of Justice. Vera started its first Restoring Promises unit in 2017, taking lessons from similar programs in Germany and Norway. The reason why we target young adults, 18 to 25-year-olds, is because they're one of the hardest age groups to work with when they're inside in prisons. They commit more violence than other age groups. They're more likely to be the victims of violence, too. And when they get out, they're more likely to end up back in prison. So there's a potentially huge return on investment for every one of these young guys you can straighten out. Howie Close is a Colorado Springs pastor who works with the unit. He speaks to the inmates at the anniversary celebration here. I love you. Close became a pastor after more than two decades behind bars in Colorado himself. Much of that time spent right here with many of the men who are now Restoring Promises mentors. For the youngsters, like, pay attention. The hope is, is that this program creates better citizens and not better convicts, because historically, historically prison creates better crooks. And those mentors, Close says he believes the type of guys who pass the mentor application process are the sorts of guys truly sorry for their crimes. They may never breathe free air again, but they have this program. When you're sitting here and you're contemplating your future, knowing this could be your last stop on earth, every human wants to have an impact. They want to have a legacy. Imagine you get to mentor a kid for two, three years, however long you invest in his life, you create that relationship, and he goes out and he gets married and has children and starts to live a life. And maybe he sends you a letter and a picture once a month, and it's like his kids are your grandkids. 25-year-old Bradley Benson is likely facing at least 10 more years before he's eligible for parole. Inside, he's getting certified as a personal trainer. When he's out, he wants to make that his career. But until then... I hope to take on one of those mentor roles and really being able to help other young men find their purpose. The Restoring Promises unit is just one experimental cell block of about 60 men in the state's entire prison system. And state officials say they're still evaluating how this unit's doing before deciding whether or not to expand it. For their part, the Vera Institute of Justice says they think half the state's prison population would do well in a similar environment. Since Bradley moved into the Restoring Promises unit, Jennifer Benson and her husband have been finding more joy, more laughter at home. I'll tell you, this last year has made us more comfortable in our own lives, knowing that he's doing better. And if he's doing better, then we're doing better because we are serving his entire sentence with him. At the Arkansas Valley Correctional Facility, 
Dan Boyce, CPR News. When we come back, the importance of pronouns. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In Colorado, you can farm potatoes, sweet corn, melons, peaches, chilies, and you can farm ice. This is what happens in Uray every winter. Ice farmers send the city's excess water down two miles of the Uncompadre Gorge's canyon walls. After about a month of careful monitoring and spraying, Uray Ice Park opens to the public. Since the mid-90s, this mecca of ice climbing draws thousands of people every year. Equipped with crampons, special boots, ropes, harnesses, and axes, they take on 150 different routes and contribute significantly to the local economy. Climbers also enjoy the ice park in Lake City and frozen waterfalls like Fish Creek in Steamboat Springs and Zapata in the San Luis Valley. The sport gained a lot of visibility in 2019 when the first Ice Climbing World Cup Finals in America, featuring a 50-foot-high wall of ice, came to downtown Denver. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Coble & Company. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And my pronouns are she, her. That little addition can have a huge impact. It can simply notify the person you're talking to how you identify, or even set the tone for a comfortable conversation about gender. And yet, for some, adding that detail is new and strange, but the effect it has on others can be profound. That's the message from Ruby George, a senior at Lakewood High School. They gave a TEDx youth talk, The Importance of Pronouns, and they spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel, about it. Ruby, so glad you're here. So glad to be here. I want to start by playing the introduction to your talk about telling your parents your preferred pronouns. Eventually, I came out with it. I went, Mom, Dad, I'm non-binary. More specifically, a gender, which means I don't feel like I have a gender. And I would like to use they, them pronouns. I am one of the few lucky ones. You say you're one of the lucky ones with a supportive family. However, at that very moment, how did you feel? Absolutely horrified. <laughs> it was months of contemplating when I was going to come out. It was like I chose the date specifically. I don't remember really? exactly, but it was sometime in February because I remember I was like, maybe if it's right before my birthday and right after my mom's, everyone will be in a good mood and maybe the response will be better. I didn't know how my parents were going to react. I mean, like I had a feeling that they would accept me. They were very accepting when I came out as pansexual. But again, better safe than sorry. So yeah. then I texted my friends just like, hey, heads up. I might need some place to stay if things go really, really wrong. And I just remember, like, just having to hype myself up for it. And then I went out and I sat in the chair and I did it. And they were, like, amazing response and accepted me. Um, my hands were, sh like, physically shaking for a good few minutes after. <laughs> and, and that feeling of relief, that's not always what some people feel after that. And yeah. so I like that idea that you were one of the lucky ones and, and that conversation happened and how loving your parents and family were. Yeah, right? I was insanely blessed. And I have friends who don't have families that are nearly as accepting as mine. And hearing stories, it, it breaks my heart. And I just hope I can be somewhat of another loving figure in their life. Yeah. And you, you mentioned pansexual. Is that how you identify? Yeah. My, for my sexuality, I identify as pansexual, which means that uh, I don't have, it's not like I have a specific attraction to gender. It's more about the person and who they are. It doesn't really matter what they identify as. 
And I'd love for you to talk a little about the example you gave to explain gender and sexuality and pronouns, because I think it's so critical for people to understand. And you chose to use clothing. Yeah. Most miscommunication, I feel like, with gender, it's because it's not something that can be physically seen. It's how we feel. It's on the inside. However, what we do see is clothes. And oftentimes when we try to assume someone's gender, because, you know, assumptions and judgment is a part of the human nature. It cannot be helped. But when we do judge, it's often based off of our clothes. So I feel like that was the best thing to go off of for our gender. Let's say it's a spectrum, right? And on our left side, there's a dress and on the right side, there's a pants. And the dress represents being a woman and like identifying as a woman and pants is being a male man and identifying as a boy. And maybe one morning someone goes and tries on the pants and they fit perfectly. It's what they feel comfortable in and that's what they can go out into society as. But like maybe some people wake up one day and try on those pants and it just does not fit right. It's too tight, doesn't fit in places. It's just uncomfortable. Like the fabric is bad. And so they go to try on maybe the dress and the dress fits perfectly. And that's what they feel comfortable in. And that's how they choose to go out in the world. And for people like me who identify as non-binary and who are somewhere in the middle, it may be something like a skirt and a tank top. It's not the same thing. It's still clothes, but it's not the same thing as a dress and pants. But that's what I feel comfortable in. And that's all really our gender is. It's how we feel best on the inside. It's what we feel comfortable as and feel comfortable as identifying out in the world. I find that reframing using articles of clothing that don't have a gender can shape how people begin to learn about these things. When I came out as gay many years ago, I had a whole world open up and I had to learn about it, right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, at the same time, I had to do what you're doing, explaining things to others about myself that I was still learning about myself. (laughs) Have you had that experience, too? A lot, because oftentimes it has been way more accepted. However, how we're standing, we're still seen as the abnormal. So when someone doesn't see something that's their normal, they want to know more about it. And a lot of my talk, I try to be like, hey, it's okay not to know. And it's okay to admit that, being like, I don't know. But in situations I did know or knew something about, I'd be able to kind of piece it together almost. But still, at the end of the day, I'd always admit that I'm human. I don't know everything about being pansexual or agender. I am only 17. I have not lived a full life. I could not tell you everything there is to experience about this. But I think the key thing is that you felt comfortable. Yes in who you were. Does that make sense? Yes. It's all about boundaries, I'm going to say. When you're talking and if you don't, if this person maybe doesn't feel right, you just don't feel comfortable talking about it yet, then like, you know, saying that boundary and be like, hey, no, let's not talk about it. I remember in middle school, I knew I was gay probably like around the eighth grade. And I had a lot of people questioning me about it. Like, what's your sexuality? Are you sure you're not straight? And like all these questions. And Like, I kind of almost joked how that's how I kind of cope is to joke. And I was like, well, I identify as confused. I don't know. Or I identify as questioning. And that's a-okay. And I found that people accepted that even more. They'd be like, okay. And and bringing them in to the conversation. When it came to your truth, was it your intention to share your story with people? That that is to say, was this role as educator just placed on you? Were you willing to accept it kind of up front? I was willing to accept it. I have always been passionate about social justice. That's always been my thing. I love knowing different people's cultures, what makes them feel comfortable and what they love. I find it so interesting just the way humans are. And when people ask me about it, I, of course, I was willing to explain because I took that as they wanted to know me. They mm. wanted to take the time out of their day to understand my human experience. And I loved it. 
that doesn't say that all the time I was super excited to share what I was feeling. You know, sometimes I'd be at school and I'd just be tired. And again, it's setting that boundary. In terms of my TED Talk, I had been talking with a lot of my friends at school who also identify as trans. And I had been noticing a reoccurring issues with them in the news. And I was like, someone needs to say something. <laughs> someone needs to put an end to this misconception because I genuinely don't understand how this language has been going on misused for so long. And the fact that even like the most like kind of like scholars, I even know for college boards sometimes, would use the wrong language. Like these people who are supposed to be very intelligent, just common misconceptions. And it could all just be cleared up super easily. And so I was like, you know what? I can do this. And I took on the role, even though I really don't like public speaking. I want to talk about some of the comments that you received on the bottom of your YouTube video (laughs) and just the polarizing nature of all of this. And you mentioned some of your friends having experiences that, that just aren't good. Yeah. I used to be in the same boat. I used to like not understand what this was. And so when this new world almost was open to me, I was scared of it. And that's normal. As a human, you're supposed to be scared of the unknown. There's biological instincts we have. And so when I go into these and talking about these comments, I just want to give people the benefit of the doubt. When I have these conversations with people, specifically people who have opposing ideas as me, to kind of come into it as a feeling of they may just not know or fully understand what I notice a lot in the comments of my sections is people talking about, well, if pronouns are so important, why haven't they been used throughout history? And the truth is they have. A lot of indigenous cultures have a term for someone who does not identify as a boy or a girl, such as like in Hawaiian cultures, a lot of Native American cultures and just people across the world. It's been multiple times recognized. And it's mainly just um, how our society has been built up. And that's the systematic oppression of women and certain genders. Do the comments worry you? Do they scare you? Does that feeling persist? Like, are they just confused or is there something more there? I will say I get scared a lot. And just seeing the way our world is now, and I think not letting that fear drive you is the big thing. It's recognizing that fear is there. But at the end of the day, I cannot let that fear stop me from potentially introducing this beautiful new world to someone, helping someone find their own identity. Ruby George is a senior at Lakewood High School. They spoke with my colleague, Nathan Heffel. See their full TEDx Youth Talk at CPR.org, as well as other interviews from our series on Colorado Gen Z Conversations. The next TEDx Youth at Cherry Creek event is this Saturday, March 4th. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the entire team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.